I come from the prayer of one of the great mothers of Scripture. We've studied it a while back, but let me read these uh, two verses from the second chapter of 2 Samuel. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Our Father, we're grateful that you reveal to your children the fact that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no rock like our God. You are the solid rock, the one in whom we have placed our faith. We're thankful for this day in which we honor Hannah and all those throughout history, and especially our mothers and wives and grandmothers and all of those, Lord, who you've given the honor and the privilege of bringing forth life into this world. And Father, we just pray that your special blessing will be upon each one, each mother and grandmother and great-grandmother here in, in this room this morning. And Lord, we ask that you will guide us now in our study this morning. Help us to have the insight we need and we ask that uh, wherever our people are today, certainly many are out of town, but uh, pray your blessing upon each life and ask that you will be glorified this day in Christ's name. Amen. So if you'll turn to Second Samuel chapter 8, I'd like to read the first eight verses. Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and measured them with a line, making them lie down in the ground. And he measured two lines to be put to death, and one full line to be kept alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. And David captured from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. And when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Beroethai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. We have a sudden change of gears here as we move from the seventh chapter to the eighth chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. Here we have the story, or the beginning of the story, of David the empire builder. Uh, chapter 8 of 2 Samuel uh, appears to be a summary statement as we read down through this and, and read the rest of the chapter. Well, see, it seems to be a summary, a summary which is not necessarily in chronological order. We have no reason to not believe that these events occurred this way, but in the sense that chapter 8 may describe events that occurred before chapter 7, where we have David's prayer and, and David's desire to build uh, the temple of the Lord. And that, you know, we're told in, in the seventh chapter that David had his palace built and was ready to build the temple as, as things became more peaceful and, and uh, he, he became uh, more wealthy. And that would seem to be more towards the end than towards the beginning. 
So the seventh chapter may actually uh, chronologically fit after the eighth chapter. And then as we go further in the second Samuel, other events are described that actually may go right back into this eighth chapter. So it's kind of a summary statement. As I've mentioned before, the Hebrews, and this is something always bear in mind, the Hebrews were not into chronological order. That's a Greek way of thinking. Uh, the Hebrews were much more poetic, and things are not listed necessarily in chronological order, uh, just as the books of the Old Testament are not necessarily in chronological order. And so, as we, we think about this, that's not a, of course, not a problem as we understand that. What we have in the eighth chapter here is a synopsis of the actions of David's, David and what, what becomes his invincible army. When we went through the seventh chapter, we had an exercise in sublimity. Here is David. He has, he has built this fine palace. The Lord's enabled him to build this palace. And now he wants to build for the Lord a temple. In this chapter, we move out of the sublime into the nitty-gritty of everyday life, you might say, of empire building, including the cruelties of war. When you read down through some of the things we read this morning, we think we're, we're, you know, we're kind of taken aback by it. But this passage really reveals faith in action. Faith in action. David had spent over 40 years being prepared by God to establish the kingdom of Israel. His submission to God by faith, by prayer, and by obedience, and he's exemplary of all of those things. A man of faith, a man of prayer, and a man of obedience. This prepared him for what would have otherwise been an overwhelming task of securing Israel. Just think of what the task is today. You know, can anybody think of, well, what would be the task today of trying to secure Israel over there today? It would seem overwhelming. And so it was every bit as overwhelming in the day we're talking about. Israel was divided into 12 tribes. They were frequently not friendly to each other. They were surrounded, they, they were, you know, amongst them were living pagans that they had not cleaned out. And all around their borders were living enemy nations. And this was the task that David faced. But through his communion with the Lord God, David had the inner strength to persevere. Perseverance is one of the key teachings you find in the life of David. A man who persevered, who pressed on to accomplish what God had called him to do. Perseverance is something that isn't real common amongst most of us. We have a tendency, when it gets too hard, we say, oh, well, I didn't really want to do that anyway, <laughs> you know, rather than persevering. But David did. He persevered. And the Holy Spirit was the one who empowered him for the victory, just as you and I today are empowered to victory by the same Holy Spirit. I think one of the most important things to derive from the Old Testament is that the men and women of the Old Testament are no different from us. Uh, they were flesh and blood. They had their trials and tribulations just as we have. Uh, they were no more on a pedestal than anybody else, even though some of the men of Scripture we think of as great men like Moses and Abraham. But, but still, you know, as, as James tells us, um, Elijah was just a man like anybody else, and yet, of course, he accomplished really great things. And so David needed the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to do these things, just as you and I do, to live each and every day in accordance with God's will. 
our enemies are not as quite, quite as clearly identifiable as David's were. He knew that on his border were Philistines, and over here were Moabites and Ammonites and Arameans. I mean, there they were. They were hostile. They were enemies. There was clear no problem understanding that. But for us, the enemies are not always so obvious. But the one who empowered the Edomites and who just as we do in order to persevere and, and to succeed. Now we know from our previous studies that the Israelites did attempt from time to time to win victories in their own strength. And you remember what happened. Saul, for example, and his sons were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. In a previous encounter, the ark was carried off by the Philistines when they went out to try to win in their own strength. But now, the victory is being won because the battle is not being fought in the strength of the Israelites. It's being fought in the strength of the Lord. With a renewed faith and a godly leader, they're moving forth and they're experiencing success beyond their wildest dream. If you could put yourself back into the sho shoes or sandals uh, of somebody living, let's say, in, in the tribal area, Benjamin, could they have possibly dreamed that Israel, this, this motley group of heterogeneous tribes who don't really want to cooperate with each other most of the time, could they possibly subdue the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Amer Arameans? No way. They couldn't have even dreamed of it. And yet they would do that under David. Likewise, we cannot win our daily battles in our strength alone. We must be empowered by the Spirit of God. Most of us know the hymn that Martin Luther, you, you remember hymns? Yeah, yeah, we used to sing those. <laughs> Barely, yeah. Martin Luther, you remember, wrote that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Ein Feisterberg. In that hymn he says, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Martin Luther understood the truth that David understood and that we must understand, that we cannot strive in our own strength. We will not succeed. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis depicts the relentless effort of demonic powers to cause us to fail in our Christian walk. The enemy is there to keep at us time and time again. He is relentless in his pursuit. He never gives up. He just keeps looking for another way to trip us up. If he comes against us one way and our armor is up, he says, okay, I'll go around a different way and, and try to attack. And sometimes he does back off for a little while, but it's never for long because he will come back with renewed vigor. This is the story of the Old Testament. Was Israel ever able to just kick into cruise control and sail down through a nice smooth path and everybody was praising the Lord and doing right? No, not for long. We can be successful, though, in our resistance of the, of the enemy if we constantly remember that the Scripture tells us that greater is he who dwells in us, if we're truly the child of God, than he who dwells in the world. The, the passage, of course, Romans is always a, a powerful book to study when it comes to the strength of, of the Christian life, but I'd like to read a few verses from the famous 8th chapter 8th chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 31. Because this really gives us insight, I think, into how it is we stand in the battle. What then? 
shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That passage, along with, of course, many others, but that one in particular, I think, should gird us up and give us the strength to walk each day knowing that no matter how powerful the enemy buffets, he cannot defeat us if we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And David appears invincible. His armies march forth, and at every quarter they defeat the enemy. We're not even given any casualty figures for Israel. Does that mean that Israel lost nobody in any of these battles? Well, probably not. But it was the enemy who was overwhelmingly crushed, and not Israel. As we read down through the 8th chapter of, of 2 Samuel, we find that David's victories seem to come fast and furious because you read about, in one short chapter, all these victories. I, I think there's a time span in here. I think there are multiple years that are involved in the 8th chapter of 2 Samuel. But what we discover here, as we read through this passage, is that, as we begin in the first verse there, the very first enemy that uh, is defeated are the Philistines. He struck to the west. Now normally you don't think that Israel has any enemies on the west because we think of the Mediterranean Sea as being out here. But in the day we're talking about, Israel only had a very small coastline here. The northern coast was in the hands of the, of the Phoenicians and the southern coast here was in the hands of the Philistines. Now the Philistines in this map have been greatly contained because Philistia used to extend all along this, this area in here. So David does conquer major areas of Philistia, but he leaves the heart, the heart of it, where the five principal cities, the, the um, uh, Pentapolis, as they were often referred to, were at. But he did, he did conquer the area, but he didn't retain it under his authority. He allowed the Philistines to continue to survive in a kind of a autonomous state, you might say, under Israelite hegemony, but not under Israelite direct rule. But in, in the passage, we discover that David's forces drive westward here and plunge into the territory of Philistia. And in the passage, it tells us that he took control of the chief city there in that 
first verse, at the end of the first verse. David took control of the chief city from the hands of the Philistines. The Hebrew there that's translated that way actually says that David took the bridle of the mother city from the hand of the Philistines, like a man takes the bridle of a horse and, and leads it. So David took the hands, took, took control of the principal city. Now the question is, what is that principal city? Because it doesn't say here. But if you go to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, it tells us that that mother city was Gath. And that's the city we've talked about a great deal. The city that was part of Samson's whole career and, and of course the city in which David lived for a while when he was allied to the Philistines. After defeating the Philistines, we discover that David struck to the east and we're told that he struck into the land of Moab down here. He conquers Moab and then he has a very curious method for depopulating the land. And nowhere else is that method ever mentioned in uh, Scripture. And of course in our day, if you were to say, okay, I want all the population of the country to get on the ground and lie it down in rows and I'm going to kill two out of every three rows of people, we'd say, ah, an atrocity. Genocide. Well, yeah, it was. And David makes no apologies. He was a wiping out a population. Why? Because they were a very, very pagan, vile people. And they had on numerous occasions attempted to seduce Israel and did seduce many Israelites into their pagan ways. They were just absolutely committed to their form of worship, which was mostly around their version of Baal. And remember, Baal worship was, was a heinous form of worship which involved ritual prostitution, it involved sacrifice of human beings, especially children, to, to the pagan fertility god. And so this is cancer eradication. It's cutting out a cancer. And God did this many times on His own. Every third, every third person to allow to be alive, yeah, every third row. Why did He do that if He You mean why did He leave any alive? I guess so that there would be a population left in the city. We're not, I mean, in the country, to, so the country wouldn't just go wild. But we're not told whether he killed mostly men, probably mostly soldiers. Probably the ones left alive were a third of the men. So they could just basically do the uh, plowing and the planting. And David had totally conquered uh, the Philistine land. Does it make any difference now the way things are? You say, if he had? I don't think so. The question was, if David had totally crushed the Philistines, let's say, and, and wiped them out, let's say, would that make any difference today over there in the land? The only difference I could think that it might make would have been that when the Romans chased the Jews out of the land, they would not have been any recollection of Philistines to name the land Palestine after the Philistines. So other than that, I can't think of any other because the people who live there today, the Palestinians, are of Arabic background. And of course, the Arabs mainly came out of what is known as Saudi Arabia down here today. But they are a mixture. They are not a homogeneous population. They are a mixture. <coughs> and amongst the Arabs, certainly you have probably remnants of Moabites and Edomites and Ammonites and Syrians all interbred and intermixed in this, in this population that we call Palestinian today. One of the things I, I teach at the college is that there is no such thing as a pure ethnic group, really. 
uh, around the world. We're all mixed. We're all Heinz 57 to some extent. I mean, even if you go to China and you'll go amongst the people of Han, the Han Chinese consider themselves to be the true Chinese, but you go back in time and you discover they were mixed with Manchurians, they were mixed with Mo Mongolians, they were mixed with Tibetans and, and, and all these different people. So re really, we're all, we're all mixed. Next, we discover that David strikes north into the land of Aram. The land of Aram is named after a man by the name of Aram. If you go back to Genesis, you discover that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that Shem had several sons, one of whom was Aram, and another was Arpachshad. Arpachshad became the father, amongst the children that would come to him, of the Hebrew nation. His brother, Aram, is the man who's the founder of the of the land in which you find the Arameans. And so what's interesting is that the Arameans, who are also known as Syrians, Syrians and Arameans, Syrians are Arameans, is that the Arameans are related to the Hebrews, as were the Edomites and the Moabites and the Midianites and the Ammonites. So almost all these people are cousins over here in this part of the world. And what we find is that the Arameans established themselves in a series of kingdoms that ran pretty much north-south like this. Not right on the coast generally, just inland, right up like so. And I'm going to talk about them briefly, and they're on your outline there listed for you, as we go from north uh, to south talking about these. These are all kingdoms established by Arameans, descendants of Aram, son of Shem, from which we get the word Semite. Semite, you know, we hear, hear anti-Semitic today. That's somebody who's against the Jews. Well, actually, anti-Semite would be against anybody who is Semitic, which all the Arabs are Semitic as well. So it's hard for an Arab to be anti-Semitic. You know, it's like being against himself. But we usually think of the word anti-Semitic as being against the Jews only. But the Arameans were Semites as well. And so if you, if you start in the north and really off the map up in here, you'll discover there was a land called Aram Naharaim, which means Aram between the rivers, or Aram of the rivers. And one of the rivers was the Euphrates up here. This is the first land of the Arameans to which the Hebrews uh, became, with which the Hebrews became familiar. It's also known as Paden Aram which means the plains of Aram. This is the world of Abraham. Actually, world of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the way down into the time of the judges. And these circles all indicate empires that existed back in those days. Babylon, which replaced ancient Sumer, where Abraham migrated out of. Abraham migrated out of Ur down here, and he went up here to Haran up here. Well, Haran is right in the middle of Paden Aram. Paden Aram, also known as Aram Naharim, is the region we're talking about here, or I'm talking about. And it existed in what is today southern Turkey and northern Syria. So this is the northernmost of the Aramean kingdoms. At the time of Abraham, however, or just after the time of Abraham, actually, there was a kingdom in that area called the kingdom of Matani. And so the dominant people were actually non-Semitic people called the Hurrians. But they died out, and the Arameans became dominant in, continued to be dominant in the uh, region. 
and Syria or Assyria over here, which is not related to Syria over here. These are similar names, but they have nothing to do with each other except they're both Semitic peoples. Uh, this is, of course, an empire that arises much later, uh, after David's time. The Hittite empire over here existed from about uh, 2000 to about 1200, so it preceded David's time and was dead by now. And the great Egyptian empire was pretty much dead by the time of David as well. So David was able to build this empire in a region where the two main empires were already gone. The Hittites were gone, the Egyptian empire was dead, and, and so there was no dominant air power. It was a bunch of small kingdoms. And as a result, David was able to build his empire in this region here, defeating the, the small kingdoms that were no longer controlled by large, powerful empires anymore. Okay? Haran was the principal city of Paden Aram or Aram Naharaim, right here, Haran. Haran was an, uh, was an important trade city. This is called the Fertile Crescent here. That's a name that was applied by a uh, British historian by the name of James Breasted back in the 19th century. He's the one who looked at a map and said, that looks like a crescent. I'll call it the Fertile Crescent. And so ever since then, we've been calling it the Fertile Crescent. Because if you follow up the rivers here, you can travel through here and always have grass for your animals. This is hostile out here. It's a desert. So you don't go over here like this. That's why Abraham didn't. He went up this way and then came down over here. Because there's grass for your animals all along here, but there's no grass out here in this area. Haran was the city to which Terah, Abraham's father, moved him and his whole family. Terah led the family from Ur all the way up here to Haran, and that's where Terah would die. And when God call, continued his call to Abraham, Abraham came from Haran south into Canaan, and God gave him the land of Canaan. What is interesting here is that because Abraham left didn't mean the other members of the family le would leave. And Abraham's brothers would remain up in here and it would be to those families that Isaac would go. Isaac would go back to get Rebekah. She was a cousin of his from one of Abraham's brothers. And then later Jacob would go back and marry two cousins, sisters, Leah and Rachel, both from Haran. And so you have the family, part of it there and part of it in Canaan, and this allowed the intermarriage here of, of cousins between Abraham's children and his brother's kids. Where would Troy, the Troy Empire, be in this? And would it be before or after? Troy is right over here. You see this strip of land here. That's called the Gallipoli Peninsula. And this is the Dardanelles. And right here, right at the mouth of it, uh, was the city of Troy, or Ilias, from which we get the Iliad. And Troy is, you go there, you visit the site today. It's a, it's a really, a, and as you stand on the mound, you can see that mouth right there. Now, was there empire subsequent or previous to these, these that are circled? Uh, it would be simultaneous with several of these, prior to David's time, though, because the Achaean Greeks, who are thought to be the ones to destroy Troy, would have been about 1200 BC, a couple hundred years before David. There's another Aram, and that's Aram Damascus, which of course you see, well I'll put the other map up because it makes it more clear. Aram Damascus here, the headquarters at the city of Damascus. This is an Aramaic kingdom as well, but separate from Aram Naharim, or Paden Aram, 
in Genesis chapter 10, there is a man mentioned who is the son of Aram, whose name is Uz, U-Z. And he is thought by legend to be the founder of the city of Damascus. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city on the surface of the earth. It has been inhabited for 4,000 years without a break. No other city can claim that record. It is ideally located where it is because Damascus is located right here in kind of a little oasis area. It's, it's dry. It's on the edge of the Syrian desert here, so it's got a very dry climate. But out of the, these mountains here, these are the Lebanon mountains, and these are, they call them the anti-Lebanon mountains. And out of the anti-Lebanon come two rivers, one there, one here, that come into Damascus. And so here you've got this hot, dry climate, which is great for vegetation. And then flowing into it are these two rivers that provide the, the, the necessary irrigation. And so Damascus is a, is a beautiful place. Damascus was famous for its, for its water uh, at that time. It is also the place to which many caravan routes come. The caravan route from Egypt, the, the so-called Via Maris, which comes through here, goes to Damascus. The route that comes along the King's Highway out of Arabia comes to Damascus. And the routes that come from Mesopotamia come to Damascus. So it's in an ideal location. Good weather, plenty of water, and, and right at a crossroads. And so Damascus has been a prosperous setter, center for thousands of years. And it will be the principal city of the Arameans. As time passes, it'll be the capital of the Arameans. And as you know today, the modern country of Syria, its capital is Damascus. There is a third Aram, Aram Zoba, which was located in the northern anti-Lebanon range and in the so-called Bekaa Valley up in here. This is the city mentioned in the passage there, Barathai, here one of them. This is a third Aramaic kingdom. So you're coming from Aram Nahrem up here to uh, Aram Hamath. I haven't mentioned that one yet, but uh, Aram Damascus. And now we have Aram Zobah here. Aram Zobah is north of Damascus, but south of Hamath, which is up here. And, and this is the Aramaic kingdom of Hamath as well. And this is the one specifically mentioned in the passage. This is where Hadadezer is king. And he is the first Aramean kingdom, which king, which the scripture says was defeated by David. And then you have Aram Hamath up here along the, not on the coast, but just inland because the Phoenicians pretty well control the coast all the way up here to Ugarit. Pretty much all along the coast here was Phoenician. And so the Arameans were just inland there in that particular place. This kingdom was a rival of Zobah. And we get that from this passage, or at least the next section, which we won't get to today, but the next verses will tell us that when the news arrived to Toi, who is T-O-I, who is the king of Hamath, he sends word to David, said, thanks, David, for knocking off hated Ezer because he was my major enemy and gave him a bunch of gifts. So obviously, Zobah and Hamath were at odds with each other, and those two kings were enemies. David never conquers Hamath. Apparently never even makes an attempt to conquer Hamath because the king becomes allied with David by these tribute, uh, tribute that he sends in. Then you have two more small ones. Uh, Aram Maaka, which is located right here. 
directly south of Mount Hermon and directly east of the Hula Valley, which is this valley right here, is it's in the northern part of what's called the Bashan Plateau. And then you have Aram Gesher, which is right here. You've all heard of the Golan Heights, right? Well, Aram Gesher it controls part of the Golan Heights and the southern part of the um, Bashan Plateau. So they're immediately north of Israel. And these two, you'll notice, uh, are within the framework of the Davidic Empire, which is this thing here. They're both within it, as is Damascus and is Zobah. So the only two Aramaic kingdoms outside David's empire are Hamath up here and Naharim up there in the north. David married a woman amongst his wives whose name was Meaka, exactly the same as this name right here. But she was the daughter of the king of Geshur. So you see, David was actually married to an Aramean. And the child born of that relationship is Absalom. And these two thus become incorporated into David's empire by marriage as well as by alliance and tribute to David. Well, it's time, I guess, we'll have to draw it to a conclusion here. But that gives you a bit of a geographic background to David's empire. And as we continue on into the next half of the eighth chapter, we discover what God does for David, gives him immense victories and tremendous wealth, which he dedicates to the Lord. Later in his life, David says, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And so it is David here will not take what God has given him for his own personal gain, but will give it only to the Lord himself. David is a tremendous example to us, to us all. Well, we'll pick up with there next week.